I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Our passage today is actually printed for you in the bulletin as well, if you prefer to use that. Uh, we're going to be looking just at a few verses at, uh, in chapter 22. Uh, the easiest time to find our place in the scriptures because you just need to turn to the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Today we are going to be looking at verses 6 through 9. So I'd encourage you to listen as I read to you Revelation 22 verses 6 through 9. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you again as we do each time that we open your word and we pray that you would help us. That through the work of your spirit right now, wherever we might be, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Teach us from your word. Help us to know that you are a God of grace and mercy. Help us to know what it means to live as your people now as we wait for our Savior to return. Do this for ultimately your glory above all things. But Father, also do it today for the good of your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are coming closer and closer to the end of our study of the book of Revelation. We're not there yet. Uh, we began about a year ago, and now we're kind of coming to what most scholars believe is kind of the final section of the final chapter of the final book of the Bible. Uh, it's been referred to as a sort of epilogue where John, through the work of the Spirit, starts collecting various thoughts as he ends this letter that he was writing that he was writing in the first century to Christians who were suffering and being persecuted. Uh, Revelation scholar Greg Beal has said, in his opinion, there really is no explicit flow of thought in these final verses. Now, when New Testament scholar Greg Beal says that it really makes you sit up and notice and you wonder, well, what is it that we are going to be able to talk about in these final verses? And although there may not be a, a single single linear flow of thought in these last verses of Revelation, that doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful things for us to be learning as we finish our study in Revelation. John finishes this book these final verses, chapter 22, verses 6 through down through the end of the chapter, he finishes this letter, this book, with five separate calls for God's people to respond to what they have been hearing, to what they have been reading. 
It's almost as if John is saying to God's people today, what are you going to do with this book of Revelation? How are you going to respond to everything that has been shown to you? If all we do is simply listen to the words of Revelation, then we've missed the point. It is important for us to listen. It is important for us to read it. But it is meant not just to be listened to and heard, but to be obeyed. God's word is meant through the work of the spirit to change us and to make us more and more like our savior, Jesus. And so he ends with five specific things that God's people should do in response to everything that he's been writing today. We're just going to look at the first two. Many of you are familiar with the uh, writer, David Brooks. He is a Canadian born American political and cultural commentator. Uh, Some would refer to him as a conservative, some maybe more moderate. But he is genuinely generally uh, received as being a genuine person and a good writer. He he writes regularly for The New York Times, for The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic Monthly, Newsweek. He's the editor at The Weekly Standard, and he regularly contributes on shows on NPR and on the PBS NewsHour. David Brooks was raised in a, a secular Jewish home. Uh, They didn't practice their Jewish faith very much, but they identified themselves as part of the Jewish faith. As he was growing up, his parents put him in an Episcopal primary school in New York City. It wasn't until the middle part of his life that David Brooks began to embrace his Jewish faith and to begin to practice it with some level of sincerity. And it's been reported that within the last few years... That David Brooks has converted to Christianity. Back in April of 2014, he wrote a very interesting article in the New York Times. It, it appeared during the time of Passover. And he discussed in that, uh, that, that pa- the paper that he wrote uh, that was printed about how Passover for the Jews was a time to celebrate their liberation from slavery into freedom. It's a time to remember that the time that Israel was led out of slavery, out of bondage, out of tyranny in Egypt and led into the promised land. He said in that article that freedom is not primarily or the main point of the Exodus story, but that there's actually something else that is going on there. He described how during the founding of the United States of America, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin all went on record as wanting Moses, the the image of Moses, to be the central figure that would be displayed on the great seal of the United States of America. That's the official seal of the documentation of the United States. Uh, It is printed on the one dollar bill on both sides of the one dollar bill. You may not remember what it looks like, but you will if you hear it described on the one side. It's the eagle. Uh, with one talon grasping 13 arrows representing the 13 colonies and the other talon grasping an olive branch. And then on the back, there's the unfinished pyramid that has the eye of providence at the top top that is encircled in glory. 
And Franklin and Adams and Jefferson argued that Moses should be the one that was the central figure on that seal. But probably not for the reason that we might first think. They didn't want him as the as the central figure on the seal, the great seal of the United States, simply because he was the liberator of a people coming out of tyranny, coming out of unjust laws and leading a people into freedom, although that is true. But Adams and Jefferson and Franklin wanted Moses as the central figure on the seal because they knew that Moses didn't just lead the people out of unjust laws and tyranny, but he led them to a place where they received a rebinding of the law, a, a re-giving of a better law, of God's law. Adams and Jefferson and Franklin understood that when one is creating social order, People need boundaries, they need directions, they need laws and order to be truly free and to flourish. Brooks finished his article in the New York Times this way. He said the laws tame the ego and they create habits of deference by reminding you of your subordination to something permanent. The laws spiritualize matter. So that something very normal, like having a meal, has a sacred component to it. The laws build community by anchoring belief in common practices. The laws moderate religious zeal. Faith is not expressed in fiery acts, but in everyday habits. The laws moderate the pleasures. They generate guardrails that are meant to restrain people from going off to emotional and sensual extremes. Exodus provides a vision of movement that is different from mere escape and liberation. The Israelites are simultaneously moving away and being bound upward. Adams and Jefferson and Franklin saw Moses not just as a figure to lead people out of tyranny, out of unjust laws, but as a figure who would lead the people to a place where they would be rebound with the right law, with God's law. It's a reminder this morning that we are most free when we are bound to the right thing. And for those of us who are believers in Christ, we know that that right thing is the word of God. Being bound to the word of God means that we will hear it, that we will listen to it, and that we will obey it. And as we do that, we will be moved to worship the one true God alone. John, as I mentioned, concludes this portion of Revelation with these five calls for God's people to respond, uh, to respond in obedience. And so we're going to look at the first two today. The first is this, that God's people are called to listen, to hear and to obey God's word. That's what we read in verses six and seven. John says, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what soon must take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice 
here. We don't we're not told explicitly who is speaking. It's probably the angel, but on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to John. And he says these words, my word is trustworthy and true. And, And notice that's the reason why we listen and obey God's word, because it is true. God's word is not just helpful. It's not just wise. It's not just interesting, not just encouraging. All of those things are true, but it is true. It is right. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from God. The, the word of God is the word of God. It comes from God. It has been breathed out by him. He is the very source of it. And he is the very source of truth. Now, that's reason enough that we would believe that God's word is true. God didn't need to, to give us any more reason than that. It comes from me. Therefore, it is true. But graciously, he does provide some additional proof that that is the case, even in our passage today. Look back in chapter 22, verse 6, and you see this reference to the God of the spirits of the prophets. It's a reference back to the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament books of the Bible. And you may or may not know this, but in terms of how the Old Testament books of the Bible were determined to be the true books of the Old Testament, it went through a very rigorous process. There was a very specific and rigorous test that was used to discern if what was being said by the Old Testament prophets and the writers of the Old Testament books were true and authoritative. The first test is that they had to, the the Old Testament prophets and what they were saying had to be in keeping with what Moses had taught. Moses was God's specific set apart spokesman. God spoke his law. He spoke his word to Moses and through Moses to the people of God. And he confirmed that as he brought Moses up to Mount Sinai and through the demonstration of his power with smoke and lightning and thunder and the writing on the tablets of stone, the words of God were given to Moses and they were shown to be true and authoritative. So the first test of an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophet being legitimate was, is what they're teaching in line with what Moses taught, what Moses recorded as the truth. But there was a second test for Old Testament prophets as well. What they said not only had to be in line with what Moses said, but what they said also had to be confirmed as true, as validated, as verified. If they said something was going to take place, it had to take place. And if it didn't, there was very specific provision given that that Old Testament prophet was to be killed if their prophecy was shown to be false. But if it was validated, if it was shown to be true, if it was shown to be proven, then their writings were kept put into the Ark of the Covenant with the words of Moses, such that we eventually get what we have as the 39 books of the Old Testament. You may wonder, what about the New Testament? Well, notice what we see at the beginning of verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. The test in the New Testament for whether the things that were being written and said were the the literal words of God, the, the word of God, was did it come from 
a, a credible, reliable, faithful apostle. Every book of the New Testament was written or sponsored by one of the apostles, an eyewitness, either literally or supernaturally, to the events that they were recording. That's what John says. These are the things that I saw. These are the things that I wrote down. And we see that repeated throughout the scriptures. In John's epistle, his first letter that he wrote, John, 1 John chapter 1, we read these, these words. This is the same John that wrote Revelation. But as he was writing a letter, he again came back to this point of the legitimacy and the authority of the word that he was writing. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the, with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John saying, I'm an eyewitness. I saw these things. That's how you know that I'm telling you the truth. God has given me this word because I was an eyewitness in these events that were taking place. Uh, we see something uh, very similar, similar as we come to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the historian that we read from the first part of Acts, his second book, the beginning of his first book, the Gospel, he wrote this, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the test for the New Testament books. Were these written by eyewitnesses, the apostles, or sponsored by an apostle, the eye, eyewitnesses of the accounts of what we are given in the New Testament? And we also remember what uh, Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1. There he says in verses 16 and following, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very vo voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have this wonderful truth of the truth of God's word that God sent his Holy Spirit to give his word to his people through these 
writers that wrote the Old Testament and the New Testament books through these tests and verifications and eyewitness accounts and the work of the Holy Spirit himself. We know that the Old Testament and New Testament books are true. But did you notice that he said not only are they true, they're also trustworthy. That's what it says in verse six. That word trustworthy means credible, reliable, faithful, dependable. And again, our minds go back to Second Timothy chapter three, where it says not only that scripture is breathed out by God, but that the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You can also read from Psalm 19 verses 7 through 11. Where David, in his wonderful psalm on the word of God, says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and keeping them. There is great reward. The word of God is not only true, it is trustworthy. It leads us in the way that we are to go. It is true. It is trustworthy. That's the reason why we ought to be listening to it and hearing it and obeying it. Now, let me make just a quick aside Because some might say, well, but look at what Jesus says in verse seven. Jesus speaking there says, behold, I'm coming soon. And if you pull out your calculators, you can figure out that this was about 1900 years ago that Jesus said these words. So how is it that Jesus said, I'm coming soon. And yet here we are 1900 years ago. That doesn't seem very soon to me. Well, it all means it all comes down to what we understand the word soon to be. Jesus had come. As was promised, he had been born into this world. He had lived a life of perfect love and obedience to his father. He had died on the cross. He had been raised from the grave and he had ascended back up into heaven. The only thing last thing to happen is for him to come back again. That's what it means when he says, I'm coming back soon. It's the last thing. It's the next thing that will happen. And you can also think of it this way. The scriptures tell us. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It's soon not by our perspective, but by God's perspective. This word is true. It is trustworthy. Therefore, we need to hear it and we need to obey it. We need to hear it. That means that we need to be reading it, that we need to be listening to it. Certainly on Sunday mornings, our services need to be filled with the word of God. But we need to be listening and hearing to the word of God more than just on Sunday mornings. We need to be doing it on our own. We need to be doing it with others throughout the week. How else are we going to know what the word of God says unless we actually read it and hear it and listen to it? And it's not just hearing and listening. We also need to be obeying it. And that means even when it comes to things that we don't like that it says, even when the word tells us things that make us uncomfortable, 
Even when the word tells us things that will cost us if we follow it. For example, the word calls us to love our wives and our husbands, even if they don't do a good job of loving us back. The word tells us that we are supposed to love our enemies. The word tells us that we should not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. The word tells us that we should not lie, that we need to obey our parents. The word tells us that we should root out all greed and selfishness. The word tells us that it's not right, it's not good, and we should do everything we can to root out bitterness from our hearts. We must not only listen to the word, hear it, read it, but we need to obey it even when it means that it will be difficult for us to do so. It's certainly not easy. And so it would be helpful if we had a good reason to hear and obey the word. And notice we get that in verse 7. Behold, Jesus speaking says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 7 says, when we keep the words, when we hear the words of the prophecy of this book, we will be blessed. It's a reminder of what he said all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the, the, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. The reason to do the hard work of spending time in the Word of God, listening to it, hearing it, and obeying it, is because God blesses us through it. Now, He doesn't give us lots of details of what that blessing is here in this passage, but other places in the Scriptures tell us what the blessing is that we get from reading the Word of God. It is through the Word that we know about eternal life, that we know about God's grace, that we know about the fact that He loves us in Christ he tells us through his word how it is that we get to heaven. He tells us the story of redemption. He tells us about what it means to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us the truths and the promises of who we are as God's people. And that's a blessing to us. It is also through the word that we know how to live now in a way that is pleasing to God and is good for us. That's a blessing. A blessing from God through his word. So, this first call to respond that John gives us in this final section of Revelation is that we would hear God's word and that we would obey God's word and that as a result of doing that, we would be blessed by God. But there's a second thing that I want us to see here in the passage. It's in verses 8 and 9. Not only are we to listen and, and to hear and to obey the word of God, but we are to worship rightly. Did you notice what happens immediately after John is, is reminded of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the word of God? What does he do? Verse eight. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. The first thing that we see that John does when he is confronted with the truth and the, and the trustworthiness of the word of God is that he falls down to worship. And the first thing that we see about that is how not to do it. 
Now, I don't know if John got so caught up in the moment of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the word of God that he got confused of who it was that he was standing in front of. Or perhaps he actually mistook the angel for Jesus himself. But regardless, he fell down at the feet of this angel and he began to worship. And notice at the beginning of verse 9, the angel quickly corrects John. He uses extremely strong language here. In your English translation, the only way that they could get that across was by putting an exclamation point at the end of this statement. You must not do that, the angel says. It's emphatic. It's a serious and a severe rebuke that the angel is giving to John. The angel knew firsthand what happened to the angels who sought to get worship of themselves rather than the one true God. We do too. Because we read Revelation 20. And we know about the angel Satan who sought his own glory and the worship of himself. And he was cast forever Into the fire of burning sulfur. So the angel quickly, you would imagine, very quickly reminds John, you must not do that. You must not worship me. That is not how it is to be done. But notice he quickly also tells him how it is to be done. At the end of verse 9, he says very simply and yet very profoundly, worship God. I want you to notice two things about what the angel told John. The first is that it's a command. In the Greek language, this is an imperative, which means it's a command. It's something that they are to be doing. Worship God. It's not an option. It's not based on our feeling. It is a command that we are to be worshiping God. And notice the second thing is that the verb, the the imperative verb, the, the command has an object. Worship God specifically. That is, the object and the manner of our worship is not left up to us. We don't get to worship whatever we want to worship. That's one of the most fundamental differences that Christians have with the world. The world says, worship whatever you want. Worship food. Worship another person. Worship success. Worship wealth and an easy life. But we're reminded here that there is only one thing that we are called to worship, and that is the Lord. And giving our devotion, giving our worship to anything or anyone else is wrong. Worship is not primarily about what we get out of it. Worship is not primarily for our benefit or for our enjoyment. It is for the glory of God. Our worship must be directed to the right place, which is the Lord God Almighty himself. And worship must be more about God receiving that glory than simply my enjoyment of it. So here are these two things that John begins with as he closes his book. Uh, The first one is that in response to the book of Revelation, what are you going to do with this book of Revelation that has now been given to you? The first is to hear and to listen to the word of God and to obey it. And the second is that we would be in response to the word of God. We would be moved to worship God alone as he calls us to do so. Both of these things are difficult. Both of them are challenging. And so we need to be properly motivated to do them. So where does our motivation come from? 
I could just say this. Our motivation for doing these things that we are called to do is literally everything that Revelation has told us so far. God is in control of all things and in the end, He wins. In Revelation, He has told us what life is like living now between the advents of Jesus, between His first coming and His second coming. That in this life, God's people will experience suffering and persecution and trials and tribulations. But that Jesus is the great and the promised Redeemer. And He has been called, we have been called to give our lives to Him. That we would find our hope in our relationship with Him. And that through all that we go through, He is with us. That He will preserve us and that He will enable us to persevere to the very end. And that Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, He will be bringing the new heaven and the new earth and everything that we will experience for all eternity will make the difficulties and the challenges in this life pale in comparison. So the question comes down as we think about our motivation is, do we love Jesus? Do we love our Redeemer and our King? Do you look forward to, as He says in verse 7, Him coming back? Do you, do, are you moved by the sense of what we read in chapter 22, verse 4? The fact that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have the name of God all over us. And we will see God himself face to face. This is our ultimate motivation for hearing and obeying the word and worshiping the Lord God Almighty rightly. Do we understand all that he has done for us, all that he is doing for us and all that he will do for us? That's one reason why it's helpful to remember his Jesus's ascension. At this very moment, Jesus is in heaven as our advocate. He's praying for us. Enabling us to persevere to the end. And the more that we love Jesus, the more that we see all that he has and is doing for us, the more that we will be moved as his people to hear his word, to delight in the word, to do what the word says in obedience, and then to worship the Lord alone. Now, on this Memorial Day weekend, I couldn't get away without having some kind of a illustration that relates to something uh, theme-wise with Memorial Day. Steve Wilmhurst is a British pastor and New Testament scholar and has written a commentary on the book of Revelation. And in his commentary, he, he writes about the Christians who are waiting for Jesus to return. And in order to illustrate that, he, he, he makes a comparison between Christians who are waiting for Jesus to come back and the French resistance fighters during World War II who were waiting for the Allied forces to come to their rescue. During the years of the Nazi occupation of France, many uh, French, French people began cooperating with the Nazi government. But a small band of brave fighters fought against the Nazi regime. They sabotaged rail lines. They sabotaged military bases. They gave intelligence to the Allied forces. And they waited eagerly for when the armies that were coming for them would actually arrive and rescue them. They knew that they could not last very long on their own and they needed help. Now the resistance fighters didn't know when the American and the British troops were going to arrive 
But there were codes that were sent to them at various points of time with instructions. And on June June 1st, 1944, the BBC broadcast a coded hidden message in their regular programming. And when it was translated by the resistance fighters in France, it said something to the equivalent of, Stand by, we're coming soon. And of course we know five days later, the invasion of Normandy began. That code, that message that came to them, stand by, we are coming soon, gave them just enough hope, just enough encouragement that they would persevere, that they would keep going, that they would keep fighting, that they would not give up, that they would not give in, and they would not compromise to evil. And brothers and, Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, how much more so for us? We are God's people living between the advents, dealing with our own sin and the fallenness of this world and the attacks of the devil himself. And we are waiting for King Jesus to return when he will come for our final rescue, finishing off evil and sin once and for all. And while we wait, we know that it is hard and difficult. It seems long and there are plenty of temptations to give up and to compromise. But King Jesus has sent us a message. It is the very word of God. And it tells us in verse seven, get ready. I am coming soon. And he speaks not just of friendly forces coming to liberate Nazi oppression, but he speaks as the Lord God Almighty who is coming to liberate us from the bondage of sin and to redeem us with his grace. We don't know exactly when that's going to be, but we know it's going to happen for sure because he said it. So don't give up. Don't give in. Keep going. Persevere to the end. Don't compromise. As we wait, answer the call to be faithful to our Lord and King. Serve Him and be ready for His return. Hear, listen, the Word of God. Obey what it says. Be moved to worship none other than the Lord God Himself alone. And in those moments when your strength wanes, when your motivation is weak, remember all that Revelation has taught us. How much our Savior loves us. How much He has given Himself to redeem us. How even now He is our advocate in heaven and He's coming again. And when He comes, He will bring with Him the new heaven and the new earth. So don't give up. Keep going. Persevere. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your word. Not just that we would read the words on the page, but that you would, through the work of your spirit, take your word and press it deeply into our hearts and our minds. That we would be conformed and shaped more and more into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would look more and more like him, even as we wait for, eagerly wait for his return. Keep us faithful, Father. Motivate us to read the word of God and to obey it. And as we do and as we see your glory, as we see your grace, as we see the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ and his 
life and death and resurrection and ascension and promise to return again. Move us to worship and to worship you rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.